Hey guys, what follows is going to be my interview with Dr. Christian Pennon. I really hope you enjoy it as much as I did. Um, there's some great links in the show notes where you can get his book. And uh, in addition, I also want to tell you about another podcast, The History of North America, hosted by Mark uh, Vinette. It's an excellent show, very concise. The episodes often are about, I don't know, uh, maybe 15 minutes. They're great, though. Uh, give it a shot. I could go on about it, but I think I better let it speak for itself. The History of North America podcast is a sweeping historical saga of the United States, Canada, and Mexico from their deep origins to our present epoch. Join me, Mark Vinette on this exciting, fascinating, epic journey through time, focusing on the compelling, wonderful, and tragic stories of North America's inhabitants, heroes, villains, leaders, environment, and geography. This incredible historical adventure follows a path of exciting events led by interesting people who reach beyond their grasp to touch key moments in time. The History of North America podcast series is an educational and entertaining look at the thrilling chronicle of North America, an action-packed tale of a continent that is still unfolding. I invite you to come along for the ride. Hello and welcome to the History of the Atlantic World podcast. I am your allegedly hilarious host, Jesse Weiss, and joining us today is Dr. Christian Pinan. Dr. Pinan is an associate professor of history at Mississippi College. Today we are here to talk about his new book, Complexion of Empire in Natchez, Race and Slavery in the Mississippi Borderlands. There's a link in the show notes that lets you, dear listener, find and purchase the book should you uh, be able to do so. Thank you, Christian, for speaking with us today. And I realized I should have asked you, do, do I pronounce your last name as Pinan? Is that Pinin. correct? Pinan. I'm sorry. I, I've had that problem with a previous uh, 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 interview that I did. And I realized, uh, I, oh, from now on, I should definitely make sure I'm pronouncing their name right. Um, Anyway, and then I sure enough, I, I didn't. Uh, I, I apologize. But uh, anyway, uh, okay, so the topic of your book is about Natchez, Mississippi, as I like to say. It's a place where I think in the minds of a lot of people listening and in myself as well, it's overshadowed a little bit, I think, by the modern metropolises, I guess, of New Orleans and St. Louis. But in reading your book, there was a lot of unique things about Natchez that uh, I discovered. And so, would you tell us about that? What is studying the history of Natchez? Tell us. Yes. And then um, thank you for, for having me um, and for, um, for that pretty good question, <clears throat> because Natchez um, is sort of, in modern ways, the epitome of the antebellum South. It's sort of, uh, I think their their slogan is still where the old South still lives, which is you know a little bit problematic <clears throat> to to say it mildly. Um, but 
it's this place that in, in the antebellum period, so between statehood, you know, or, or the early American Republic and then the Civil War, became the, the richest town per capita in the United States. And if you've wow. ever been to Natchez or if you look it up on a map, um, it's tiny. Um, and that contributed to it it's just because it's per capita, but it produced enormous amounts of wealth because the, the people, that the, the enslavers that lived in Natchez called it home, owned plantations uh, surrounding the town uh, across the river in Louisiana. I mean, they were some of the richest people in the country. Um, and it shows in, in their houses and so forth. Um, and so I look at it at a colonial perspective. So before all, all this appears, um, before that money is generated by the, the backbreaking labor of the enslaved. But even then, you're right, uh, New Orleans and St. Louis, in, in part because they become much more um, urban centers like today. And so their stories then overshadow Natchez pretty easily. Um, but even in colonial times, uh, New Orleans and St. Louis are uh, at times more important. New Orleans in particular. So I'd like to talk more about New Orleans. Yeah, no, please. Uh, uh, New Orleans always is this very important port. It, it, it is Natchez's connection as well to the Atlantic world. Like from right. there, it's where any kind of crop has to be shipped to, to get to, to anywhere uh, down in Mississippi and then out there. Um, but still, Natchez offers just some unique um, perspective because, you know, I mean, if you know a little bit about the history of the lower Mississippi Valley and New Orleans there, New Orleans was French, then Spanish, um, then French again for a short time. And then it became part of the uh, Louisiana Territory right. in the American early Republic, early American Republic. And Natchez has uh, has some more uh, twists and turns in its story. Yeah, in that. it was French. Uh, then uh, it became Spanish. Then it became uh, English. Sorry. Then it became Spanish, and then it became American. Right. So we saw you know one more empire take hold uh, of of the small outpost at that time, and that means that the people never really settled in. In, in a way, like when there, there was never stability, nobody really, uh, I mean, people were cycling through based on the different empires and the administrators uh, that brought different soldiers, yeah. uh, multiple languages, uh, multiple Native American trade partners, um, lots of African people um, and, and multiple governments. And they came in such quick succession that the people uh, were always sort of hedging their bets because they never quite knew what the next year might bring. And so, you know, this is sort of a liminal status, like they never really formed a stable society. And we can trace this through, you know, social mores, we can trace it through legal change, particularly that's what I do. Um, and that allows us to kind of observe how people reacted maybe more freely as more right. like free radicals, both enslaved, all people, enslaved people, Native American people, they all try to sort of develop an agency um, because they all sense that this process is just, you can't. You simply can't, like, because there's so much instability, you can influence this and you can work this to your advantage. Uh, and so everybody consistently tried to do that. And by doing that, you can learn a lot about, um, if you find the sources for it, um, to sort of, you know, like in my case, I look at ideas of uh, race and slavery and how that developed, how it differs from, from uh, empire to empire, how they treated the people, what options they allowed these people to pursue. Um, and so you can kind of see things develop there quite, quite neatly um, that you can't in New Orleans because it's a, to a degree, uh, because it's a more settled area. Gotcha. No, that, uh, thank you for that. That's a, an, an excellent, uh, I think, uh, uh, answer for, 
for why not just because, and I, I'm going to go ahead to, I want to talk, I guess, uh, really briefly to, I'm, I'm going a little out of order in my question, excuse me, let me find my question. I want to talk about the, the indigenous, the Natchez people, was it the Natchez tri I, I, tribe? It wouldn't even be the correct, it's a chief, a Mississippian chiefdom, I guess, correct? That uh, what are originally there, the last of them. But, and I didn't know a lot about them, uh, but I, I was very interested that, that you mentioned that, uh, you know, when, I guess when I think of a Mississippian chiefdom, I'm thinking of one single entity that uh, you don't really think about how there might be political factions within uh, that. And uh, would you talk a, a little bit about how Natchez society operates with the uh, French, with the French and it, in the 1700s real quick? Because I, I thought that was pretty neat. Absolutely. Um, and so the Natchez um, were, as you mentioned, a, a miss, we think, uh, based on what we kind of learn, what we kind of downstream from, from, from history and, and sources, um, were a Mississippian people. Um, now that means, uh, you know, a, a couple of things. It, it, it means that they were mound builders. Uh, mounds are, you know, I mean, the, the most prominent one would probably be Cahokia yeah. um, or places like Moundville in Alabama. And in the Natchez area today, there's a very big one, the second largest one in, in, in North America, actually, it's called Emerald Mound. And as you can still go see, yeah. um, it's quite impressive. Um, and that defined their society sort of as, as the architectural um, marker. But they were in existence, for example, during um, the arrival of DeSoto and his um, track through what is now we call the Southeast from Florida, you know, all the way into Texas and then back. Um, and his arrival sort of sparked um, issues within the Mississippian culture, the warfare, um, that he inflicted on people, uh, sort of created political instabilities, the diseases that he and the other Europeans that came with him introduced into these communities, uh, took a heavy toll on their populations and it destabilized the, the entire region to a degree uh, in such a way that when about a century and a half later, the French appeared, they didn't really find many of these uh, Mississippian uh, chiefdoms anymore. And the way that they had functioned as society was that you had uh, one chiefdom like Ahokia, which would rise to prominence through trade and through gift giving. And they would then subdue um, other smaller chiefdoms that would look to them for both protection militarily, but predominantly to, to food, for food sources. So these larger chiefdoms would hold food storage. And then if there would be lean times, they could then, you know, distribute them out to the smaller chiefdoms who in turn would then distribute them to their people. So you had this, this system that, that worked fairly well, but there were always political factions. So when that chieftain in a particular village could no longer supply that or could no longer bestow trade goods on his, uh, you know, the people below him in power, there would be challenges. And then, you know, we call the cycling. Uh, one chieftain would rise and another would fall. Uh, so you had sort of political strife within these organizations. Um, and the Natchez were, were no different. Um, but when the French or any Europeans really, you know, come upon these people, they have a hard time understanding that. Uh, the French in particular, because the French, uh, when they come, they come to the Lower Mississippi Valley in 1699. Um, and then they begin to develop settlements on the coast first, uh, you know, Biloxi, um, Mobile that area. Um, and then eventually 
that found New Orleans, although Natchez is about two years older in terms of a trading post there. Uh, and then they come to Natchez. And the French sort of misjudged this, this idea of who this um, chieftain is, the great son, as the Natchez is the titular title um, at that point. Uh, and the great son, um, we think, because we don't have any actual Natchez written sources, so we, all, we have to read this through French descriptions, which is kind of right. hard, um, because the French see a ruler that sits on you know, the highest mount in yeah. the area, and they see him sort of distribute gifts and, and get like a lot of reverence and you know, get the best cuts of meats and, and hunting and veal and stuff like that. And so they equate him with Louis XIV, their son king, an absolute right. ruler, which is not the case at all. They, they don't understand that the outlying villages, yes, are sort of belonging to him, but we also think that at this point in time, the great son potentially was more of a spiritual, so more religious leader than an actual political powerhouse. Um, there, there are some you know, questions there. We're trying to kind of work that out. And um, there are some other instabilities introduced. So the Natchez, because of their traditional ways, um, were accepting refugees from other nations or confederacies. Um, and at that point in time, in the early 1700s, the people in South Carolina, in South modern around Charleston, the English had begun to sort of develop a strong Native American slave trade in which they would capture and then subsequently enslave uh, Native American people. And that created such a havoc and such an amount of warfare in the sort of Eastern Southeast that a lot of people fled. And so we had a lot of arrivals in the Natchez area of refugees who would then cluster um, into new and coalesce into new sort of, uh, you know, villages that would nominally belong to, to the Natchez, but there were different allegiances there. Some of them were pro-British, some of them were pro-French. And so when the French show up, there's, there's sort of conflict there. Who do we go with? Uh, the Natchez were raided by Choctaw or Chickasaws, depending on at the time, for enslaved people themselves. So there's all kinds of political wrangling going on. And then the Natchez had this um, a matrilineal society, we believe, which means that the lineage was determined by the family of the wife, the woman, or women in yes. particular. Yeah. So we think that the great son, for example, may have been the son of a uh, Natchez woman, woman and uh, a French priest, potentially. Okay. Huh. Um, and we know, also know, and um, you might get to this later on too, is that, that one African in particular potentially was a runaway slave um, from the French, had come up and had intermarried into um, the Natchez and had become, through his wife, likely a military leader, and the French were very concerned with him. That's the, I remember him from the, but the gentleman who, who you suspect may have been a French soldier. Uh, potentially, right. The French used, of, yeah. uh, you know, it, it, because he had military knowledge, so he might not have been an agricultural Yeah, um, yeah worker or he was a soldier in Africa, had been captured by the French, been part of the Atlantic right, slave trade, yeah, brought over. Yeah. But he certainly knew how to deal. He certainly created a, a level of fear among the French because they single him out. Right. As somebody yeah. they, they want to get rid of, particularly. Uh, yeah. Um, and, and speaking of that, the, the, the or I guess real, real quickly, um, I guess just for everybody listening, uh, could you give like a, just a brief timeline of when the various yeah. colonial powers take over and, and from then on, it'll be a lot more clear of what's happening. Yes, absolutely. It is, um, yeah, anyway. 
it is quite confusing at times. Yes, yes. So as I said, the French arrive in the lower Mississippi Valley in 1699. They get to Natchez in like 1716. And it's just a trading post. There's not, they, they will eventually build a fort, but it's, you know, it's a trading post. It's, it's really out there. Um, they know right away that the area is extremely um, fertile. Like they know that right away, they're good farmers. So they know that they can grow stuff. You just got to find something that they can grow. But initially it's just trade, uh, fur trade, which is sort of something they borrow uh, as a um, economic, as a money-making operation from the Canadians. And it's a lot of, um, Canadians actually come and, and, and uh, build Native American relationships in that area. Um, and then um, they begin to erect plantations to kind of use the soil and they try to figure out that they can grow tobacco there and so forth. And then in 1729, they sort of um, overplay their hand with the Natchez Indians and there's a rebellion, there's an uprising. They, they're actually able to displace the French from the area, um, but the French uh, are ultimately succeed in, in, in punishing the Natchez for that with the help or most exclusively with the help of Native American allies themselves. And then the Natchez become refugees who some flee to the Chickasaw. The Chickasaw come then on eventually later under military pressure and Natchez actually have to flee east um, to where it's modern day Georgia, uh, the Augusta area. And eventually they, and they sort of split up. So the Natchez kind of cease to exist after that. Uh, but the French also never really come back. Um, like they had put a lot of resources into Natchez in terms of uh, buildings, uh, enslaved people, materials, and it just doesn't, it's, it just doesn't recover. They can't recover. Yeah. And so there's some soldiers there, but not, not anything like that approaching the pre-1729 uprising. And then um, as part of the French and Indian War, the, or as the, during the treaty that ends that, the Treaty of Paris in 1763, um, the French give the Natchez area to the English. And then they give Louisiana anything except for New Orleans west of the Mississippi River becomes Spanish. And that area, uh, the Natchez area becomes English, part of West Florida. Okay. So that's 1763. Then we get to the American Revolution in 1776. And as part of that, when Spain joins the Americans, um, in 1778, 1778, 1779, um, they then attack from New Orleans. They, they attack Baton Rouge. And when Baton Rouge surrenders in 1779, they also surrender Natchez with that, which <laughs> the Natchez people were not quite amused. They called the, uh, the, the commander of, of Baton Rouge a tea-drinking coward. Um, so he doesn't get a lot of uh, praise there. Um, but yeah, then it becomes uh, Spanish in 1779. Um, they get it in the treaties uh, officially that, that sort of end the, the, um, the wars there. And then in 1795, um, the United States finally uh, signs a treaty with the Spanish to, to get it back. It's a pretty complicated history um, because the, there are multiple peace treaties between the Americans and the British and the Spanish and the British and the French and the British. Yeah. And the British don't keep track of uh, the longitudes. Okay. Hmm. So, um, you know, like uh, the, the treaty that the English make with the Americans includes the Natchez area, but the treaties that the English make with the Spanish does not. That does also include the Spanish area. So they're both vying for this. And then there's a discussion between, you know, the Americans and the yeah. Spanish that really this should be ours. And the Spanish said, no, it's not. 
Um, and so the Treaty of um, Tordesillas, no, that's wrong, way wrong. <laughs> Sorry, I'm teaching no, uh, a different class. Um, there's, there's another treaty between the Spanish and so in, the, in, in America, they call it Pinckney's Treaty. Um, San Lorenzo, Treaty of San Lorenzo, there you go. Yeah, yeah. In 1795, then, then officially grants the Americans possession of Natchez, but nobody really gets there until 1798. Right. Yeah. It, I thought that was kind of interesting too. The, uh, it was like a three-year difference between yeah. the, the treaty and the actual. Um, so but anyway, I, I th thank you. I think that's actually going to be very helpful. Um, and now, speaking of, uh, you, you mentioned too, We, we I want to get back to uh, and I, I don't remember if we know his name. I don't think we do. The the the, the escaped uh, ex slave who who became quite prominent in not just society, but um, he, he's part of uh, I, I guess really what I would think of as an evolution of the relationship between um, the indigenous people and enslaved Africans living in Natchez. And would you get into that, that evolution? Because I thought that was pretty, pretty interesting as well. Yeah, so <clears throat> that's sort of the core of the book is where I'm trying to sort of figure out so how do people begin to understand skin color, complexion um, as a determining factor for you know, stations in society because people always use the word race, but it doesn't, didn't mean in the 18th century or 17th century, what we associate with it now. So for us now, race means skin color. Right. Right. Uh, quite right there. Like, but yeah, people, yeah. But people <laughs> used it in the the 18th century, and when they use race, it can it can mean skin color, but it can also mean dress, language, education. Who then combine to make one African, Native American, or European. So these people, uh, for example, were very concerned that uh, white Frenchmen were dressing in Indian garb, which would make them by race Indian and not French, right? right? So it's, it's more of a combination of factors that make one a, a people mm -hmm. uh, rather than just skin color. Like a, like a full culture, yeah. Yeah, the sort of a, yeah, um, in, in that kind of sense. And the French try to get a hold of that uh, because if you have a slave society, that's dangerous. You, you need very clear rules about, uh, you know, what, what is the folk, what's, what does blackness mean? What is whiteness? What is white? What is black? What does that mean yeah. in terms of labor relations to, you know, in terms of settler colonialism, like how can we actually control our population? And that's a very much, it's a, it's a choice to, you know, uh, to deploy white supremacy to govern your, your colony or your, your region there. And the Natchez specifically don't have that. Uh, they certainly have slavery, uh, but it is, you know, it's more captivity. So if you become uh, enslaved by the Natchez, which is possible if you're captive, war captive or something like that, um, you, you can obviously be mistreated, but you're not based on your skin color. Like mm -hmm. the, 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 the African person that, whose name we don't know, he can rise to, um, to quite a high status because he married into the Natchez society. And then that's that. When the French come and really settle in earnest, so the 1720s, they begin to bring more and more African people to the area. And the Natchez sort of begin to learn what does that mean? What does blackness mean to the French? 
And initially, in the early 1720s, the Natchez are just fine with that. They, they target um, the Native Americans like they would have targeted uh, livestock before, uh, sorry, they target Africans like they would have targeted livestock before and sort of um, as warning signs, like, hey, you're up, overstepping your boundary, so we're gonna shoot your cow, right? To, to give you an idea, like, stop doing that. Do not expand on, our, on this land right here. This is ours, it's holy. Like, we're gonna shoot everything that comes to it. That's the same way that enslaved Africans at times are treated. Until by the mid 1720s, things seem to have changed. Uh, the Natchez sort of began to realize that uh, these, we are three different people. They're right. African people, they're European people, and then they're Native American people. And when the Natchez come to that realization, they also begin to understand that the French are treating them increasingly and dramatically so, more like African people than white people. And when they begin to realize that, um, that's a pretty hard uh, realization for them. They begin to, as far as the French record their talks at least, begin to talk about, you know, we're treated like slaves. And then that has meaning. That means they really understand that, not as Native American slaves, right. but as African slaves. And that becomes quite a problem. Um, we see French people overstepping, uh, they punish uh, for transgression, they punish the people the same way, Native American people and African people. Um, they begin to transgress repeatedly, um, sort of sexual violence, uh, you know, against Native American women. Um, and so there's a, the, the animosity begins to swirl and it's centered around this idea of, of growing, a growing understanding of what complexion, skin color means and what it entails. Yeah, and so the, the Natchez then move from sort of treating um, the enslaved people, the enslaved African people like livestock to treating them as, okay, they're actually quite convenient um, allies if we do plan to move against uh, the French. Yeah, yeah. No, I, uh, I thought, I, yeah, and I thought that was those, those, uh, I almost kind of an expected uh, transformation in the, in the relationship. Um, yeah, and the French, it freaked the French out. When, when, the, um, when the Natchez rose in, in the Natchez area and combined with the Atlantic Africans to overthrow the French there, the French governor in New Orleans immediately sent a force of enslaved Africans to attack Native Americans living close to New Orleans to, to both stave off a possible rebellion there because the Natchez had reached out to other people right. to kind of, um, you know, see if they can all attack the French. Yeah. Uh, and to, to create racial, I mean, what we now would call racial divide. Like here are black people attacking Native Americans. So don't unite with these, right? Right. It's very by design. Yeah, yeah. To kind of create this uh, diversion. Um, well, and, and now I guess a, a lot of these... Uh... Uh, a, a lot of this violence is all governed under something called the French Code Noir, I guess. And, and uh, I guess, would you briefly explain what the French Code Noir is and, and uh, I guess where it comes from? It, and how is it applied in Natchez? Yeah. Uh, so um, the French Code Noir is this legal framework that the French originally create in the Caribbean. Uh, so there are the Caribbean possessions there, which are beginning to really uh, draw on slave labor. And um, it 
sort of draws on medieval origins in which, in which French people trace bloodlines to determine who has, um, you know, like royal blood. Yeah. Um, and so they use that then to begin to differentiate between white people and black people in the Caribbean. And they do that because, like in many slave societies, you see a lot of um, sexual interaction between white men and black women. And then you create uh, mixed race people. And the French, like most European empires, are quite unsure what that means. Are these people white? Are these people black? How do we treat them legally? And so they begin to find um, legal ways to separate and to punish sexual transgressions, as they call them, in that way. Um, that legal framework doesn't make it to Louisiana until 1724, when the French government there adopts it. And again, if you think about back what we earlier talked about, when the Natchez begin to see and react to these transitions, it's the mid-1720s. Yeah. Uh, and then so the French begin then to institute um, the legal framework uh, from New Orleans. They adopt it. They have to adopt it a little bit to the realities of French Louisiana, which hadn't been necessarily governed, had sort of these ideas existed, but they haven't officially governed by this. So there are a lot of um, sort of mixed pseudo marriages and they can't just break them up because that would create, you know, uh, a lot of bad blood among their own settlers. And they kind of want to keep every white person that they possibly could in Louisiana. It was not a, uh, a hot commodity to go there. Um, and so there are some, um, some, some changes there, um, but in totality, um, it did, you know, did, did allow some provisions for enslaved people. Like you, you were not required, you couldn't really work on Sundays. That was something that was prohibited. Um, uh, there was some protections technically. I mean, all these things are technical, right? Because yeah. we're talking about slavery. And so in slavery, uh, the base function of, to control is violence. And so you're not going to get like people following the letter of the law if, if you only get people to work by beating them. Um, but th there is some legal recourse there potentially included in um, the, the Code Noir. And that's how we actually get a lot of sources because enslaved people become active in front of courts to sort of try and, and gain uh, some of that. Um, but overall, it, it sort of begins to firm up ideas of complexion and what it means and it has certainly transports a lot of meaning. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, I, 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 I'm sorry, I'm a little, uh, I, I, I write my questions down in advance uh, for everyone who's listening. And uh, sometimes I skip around a little bit um, though. And uh, when, when, uh, when I want to go ahead to when Spain takes Natchez, I, I get in the seventeen uh, seven, late seventeen seventies, I guess. Uh, what what happens? Uh, because when Spain takes over, I thought I thought that was a very very interesting relationship. Because uh, Spain takes over and then they start ruling, I guess, a a colony of French, British, and uh, now American colonists. Uh, and so, how does all that work? it kind of sort of works <laughs> um <laughs> yeah maybe i should ask how, white right so in 1779 after this uh infamous you know treaty or surrender of baton rouge um the spanish kind of show up in natchez and the people in natchez are like now what 
Um, and but part of the peace accords apparently was that for now, for a short time, turns out it was about two years, the Spanish are in charge, but the laws and everything stays the same. So between 1779 and 1781, we don't, there's not, you know, sure, there's a different empire in charge, but there might actually be benefits for the people that live in Natchez. And you're right, some of them are French, um, not a lot. There's some, some leftovers um, that are employed by the Spanish now. Um, there are not a lot of Spanish settlers, even a lot of them are Anglos. Um, a lot of them are loyalists who had come here under the English government escaping sort of political upheaval in the Eastern colonies. And they had come to, to, uh, to, England, to British Natchez at that point. Um, and so the laws kind of carry on, except for the fact that now whatever you produce, you can ship, you know, free, not a lot of taxes, not a lot of tariffs through New Orleans, which is great, much mm -hmm. better than trying to get it up the river and then you know over the uh, Appalachian Mountains or something like that. So that's quite a beneficial uh, relationship there. And a lot of people realize that. Mm -hmm. I mean, people, I mean, they were loyalists, yes, but ultimately it's about you know how do you best survive uh, and make the most possible amount of money uh, where you currently are. And so a lot of them were not you know ideologically bound to any kind of particular cause. Um, and so they kind of just hung out for two years under the um, under their, the law, if they used it, they treated each other based on those legal traditions and continue to act in those legal traditions. Uh, it's most clearly there's a case, I think her name is Molly Glass, who is uh, supposed to be a black woman. There's a lot of uh, uh, questions about, you know, was she actually black or was she white? And she um, is accused of um, killing a, a white indentured servant uh, girl. And then she is... Um, uh, tried based on English law. And when, when the people of Natchez come down with the verdict, she's then sent to New Orleans and, and duly executed uh, based on that verdict by Spanish. Yeah. Law. Um, so it's really interesting to see that. Right. Uh, sort of legal, he's kind of in legal nowhere land. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. And it's only when the Spanish sort of really assert control when they get sort of a, a hold when they resolve the, the military situation in the lower Mississippi Valley to take Pensacola. Uh, they oust the, uh, the British garrison there. And then the war, the, 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 which is the American Revolution, is kind of over in the area. Then they send the governor. Then they send some troops to Natchez and, and kind of take hold of the situation. Yeah. Now, so now on the one hand, I guess, um, when all when when that happens and and there's like a clear route I guess through New Orleans that that these planters I guess can use uh, that that helps them out financially but on the other hand there's not a lot of cash on the frontier uh, so credit and debt are essentially the main financial tools that that people are using um, and one of the primary ways that they're getting this capital is to mortgage their slaves I guess and uh, uh, would you just what what does this mean for enslaved people uh i, I well if you just uh, want to talk about that i mean I just I, i'd just like to get across to people if they haven't really thought about that how that kind of terror might be worse than the idea that someone might physically beat you Maybe, yeah i don't know i mean i don't want to get beaten either i don't want to get say that but yeah, right. This is, this is the idea I sort of talked about earlier, right? That, that slavery is always violence. And yeah. Violence can be psychological or physical. Like, uh, I mean, it's a very oppressive system. 
And uh, we probably don't want to think about what that was like for anyone. Right, right, right. In terms of it's just tragic. But yeah, it introduced just enormous instability um, to to your everyday life uh, in the sense that you never quite know um, what really is going on because it's not like the person that's enslaving you and putting you to work is going to share with you his or her plans about whatever future. So you have these people that, that show up in Natchez who bring or buy people from the East Coast, from New Orleans, from wherever they can get them uh, to kind of try and establish their own fortunes in the area. And it's hard. I mean, it's, it's, it's frontier living. You have, uh, as I, you know, if, if you just followed what we discussed about the Spanish and the British and this constant warfare, constant instability, um, if the market collapses, you collapse because you're living on board money, literally. And so it's really hard um, for, for anyone to kind of create a stable livelihood. And it's the worst for the people that are put to work to create that livelihood. Um, because they they never know who who exactly uh, has been mortgaged, um, and so the potentials there are devastating. Because you can, you know, uh, boys or, or or I've I have a lot of uh, I found a lot of um, young uh, boys who were mortgaged um, for several hundred dollars, and then it was never clear who was, and these were brothers, uh, they were sons, obviously. And if the, the scheme, whatever business scheme was concocted, didn't work out, I mean, they were gone, right? Yeah. Their families were ripped apart. Um, and it was never, and sometimes they might have gotten lucky and the mortgage holder was in Natchez. Uh, and so while they were moving from one property to another, they may have been able to sort of stay connected, um, but obviously not in their daily lives. And if you're eight or nine, I mean, it's, it's horrifying. Yeah. But if that person also needed cash, then a sale was in order. Uh, and, and off they went and a sale opens up. I mean, like, like the mortgage opens up any kind of possibility. I mean, if yeah. you move from Natchez to New Orleans, I mean, which doesn't seem like a big deal to us now, but that with days of travel, I mean, you would never see each other again no. um, or, or places like Pensacola or anything like that. Yeah. Mobile, uh, blocks, I mean, it, or, or up the river uh, to, you know, what's modern day, the area of modern day Vicksburg. I mean, we just wouldn't know. It's, it's really, really hard. And it creates this consistent instability um, or, or worse <laughs> um, or, or with, you know, the same effects really in terms of family uh, separation, if people fall in debt and rather than sort of paying up, they just, uh, what, what natural people did a lot of things, a lot of times uh, they, they did, they, they went to Indian country is how they called it. And they just left, they just disappeared. Um, but then if they take their property with them, you know, you're living, um, like in the woods with the people that, that, that pretend to hold your body as their property. And, you know, you're facing uh, the hardships of that life on top of everything else. And there's no really good outcome here. Yeah. Um, you know, one thing I, I, there may be a lot of people listening who have, have heard about this before. And I, I admit, I have never heard of the concept, if I'm going to pronounce this right, coartacion, uh, cortisone. Uh, I have never, uh, would, would you uh, talk about what that is? And, and, uh, and anyway, just explain that, please. Yes. Uh, so that is the, the contest in the Spanish sense. It's a concept of, uh, of self-purchase, of this idea that, that you can buy your own body back right. um, and then, then own it. 
Um, now that's not something that's exclusive. The, the process of buying yourself is not something exclusively Spanish. You can do it under British or Anglo-American governance. What is specific about the Spanish is that their definition of legal personhood is a little bit different than, or quite a bit different than it is in the Anglo-American world. So in the Anglo-American world, you don't own your own body if you're an enslaved person. Like you are 100% property. You belong to your enslaver. Um, in the Spanish world, and the, I want to be very clear, this is a legal distinction, right? right. So that then um, might trigger benefits. It might also not trigger benefits. Sure. And I'll explain why in, in here really quickly. No, yeah, um, but in a Spanish sense, you are property if you were an enslaved person, but you're also subject to the king. Okay. And that means yeah. as a subject to the king, you could have certain rights. And the Spanish in their, because their legal tradition when it comes to slavery is, um, is different too. It, it, the British or, you know, more central Europeans, French uh, and Dutch and Germans, and they kind of got rid of the concept of legal slavery in their societies during or after the Crusades, roughly. When, it, when the popes came down and said, you can't enslave other Christians, so systems of labor then were changed. I mean, not much, but they were changed. Gotcha. The Spanish never did that because the Spanish consistently had to deal with an invasion of African people North African people into Spain all the way till 1492, essentially, uh, when they finally beat them. Uh, so they consistently had captives, black captives at that, that they enslaved legally. So they have a long tradition of that. But because of that, they treated them a little bit differently. They were actually acknowledging that these people were persons because right. they were war captives. And yes, they were slaves, but that also meant that they were Spanish war captives and Spanish slaves. So they had this relationship of, ex of captives exchanges and so forth, right? So they, they have this basic understanding legally that this is a little bit different. Now, if you're enslaved, that doesn't give you a lot of anything. Right. They were just as much beaten. They were traded. They were participating in clearly in the uh, transatlantic slave trade and all of these things. But if you could make it to the courthouse, you could go and say, I want to buy my freedom. And the judge would acknowledge that or the governor or whoever is in charge of that area. Um, and then you could also do this to an Anglo mask. You could go to your enslaver and say, I want to buy my freedom. And you could, the enslaver could then say, okay, uh, you get me $500 and you can be free. There's no legal requirement that that actually in Anglo tradition. Like, because you don't, you can actually not <laughs> engage right. in a legal contract under English law if you're property. Okay. In Spain, very much so. So what happens is under Corazon, you can go to a courthouse, the judge will adjudicate a price between you and your enslaver, and that's the price. And so you start making down payments on that price. And then even if your enslaver sells you, that contract travels with you. So if you have paid down half, your new enslaver can, you know, you just only have to pay him half. It stays with yeah. you. It's, it's a legally binding contract. Now, again, if you are moving from New Orleans to Natchez, I mean, it's bad. Yeah. I mean, can you trace it? Can you enforce it as an enslaved person? You're still the weakest link right. in society, right? But that's there. 
And it's, it turns out it's a powerful tool that a lot of enslaved people, particularly in the more urban areas, use quite successfully. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, that's how I, I thought it was. And, and obviously, there'd be, I mean, th this doesn't help out everyone. And I can only think about, I, I'm sure there's people who were probably saving up for their freedom and got robbed and then had no legal, really real recourse to get that money back. Well, you make those payments to the court. So okay. In the yeah. Spanish system, that that actually doesn't quite happen. Okay. Right? Or okay. Happen. But in English, in English colonies, I mean, we have these horrifying, and then even in America, in in the American South, right? We have these stories where you can save up. You know, let's say the price was four five hundred dollars, you can save up four to ninety dollars, and your enslaver will take that money and then sell you. Wow. Oh, yeah. And there's no there's no legal recourse. Yeah. Yeah. Unless you actually have court registered freedom papers, you know you. And even if you can't get those, I mean, there's no way to prove that you're free because your, your blackness, your skin color prohibits people from accepting you as such yeah. until you actually offer legal proof. Okay. Um, now kind of, kind of related, but uh, you might, I, I would think just all, off the top of my head, I guess, if you asked me, if someone asked me, Hey, would it be easier for an enslaved person to escape uh, from slavery in the frontier, I guess, or in the East Coast, I would say probably on the frontier, but that didn't mean it was necessarily maybe easy. If, if you were, say, someone who, uh, you know, is not going to have enough free time to make the money to save up uh, to purchase your freedom, but you got to get out of there, um, where would these people in not just try to go? Um, and what, what obstacles are they facing? Yeah, so that... <laughs> That is a tough question to me to, for me to answer based on source material. So what we do know, what we don't know is how many people actually try to escape because the, the mostly what, uh, when historians learn about these things is for newspaper, for runaway ads. Like we actually find the newspaper ads in which people advertise for their runaway enslaved people. Natchez didn't have a newspaper until uh, the late 1790s. Wow, that's, so, that's kind of surprising. Right, well, so I can't, th there's no way for me to really- Yeah. Um, ascertain that. Now, what I have found is court records where they were captured, where some runaways were captured, either, either in New Orleans or in Natchez. And then they were trying to find the owner and adjudicate it that way. So there's, there's that. Yeah. Um, but there are, the obstacles are enormous. Gen I mean, generally speaking, running away is, is a daunting thing because enslaved people, despite all the obstacles, created lives in captivity. Me, which means they had, you know, loved ones, children, parents, uh, partners, and running away may, may not even solve your problem, but it certainly creates more problems. I mean, who's to say that the punishment exacted for running away is going to be you and not your wife or your children? And running away with families, of course, is extremely difficult, right? You have small children, you're in the wilderness. And um, I think Adam Rothman put it, best when he said that it's romantic to kind of think about Native Americans automatically helping you out. Um, because if we think back to what happened in the mid 1720s, Native Americans at this point in time, so in the 1780s, 1790s, were very well aware of what European or African slavery or African enslavement by Europeans meant. And they were participating. I mean, there were Choctaws and Chickasaws who were building plantation fortunes on their own based on the back of enslaved black workers. And so running away was no an option because you easily get captured by Native Americans who then either sell you for profit, uh, use you on your own plantation or trade you back 
for money or political uh, capital. Um, and so, so you, you have to deal with white people that you have to avoid, you have to deal with Native Americans, and that it's almost impossible to avoid them. And so your best bet was to get down the river as quickly as you can and sort of try and blend in with the free people of color in New Orleans. And New Orleans has a longer tradition of both French government and Spanish government, which kind of ease a little bit the availability of freedom, particularly for, for black women, uh, because they were seen as sexual partners. And so you have a, a larger mixed race population in New Orleans and, and the culture that comes with that. But these people were not necessarily um, welcoming uh, other black people just because like they were uh, protecting their free status in New Orleans society quite jealously. So there was a free black militia in New Orleans and they were most often used effectively as such as slave catchers. Yeah. So just kind of blending in with other black people in New Orleans and the free population there was pretty difficult. And that's where most of my sources come from where people yeah. actually get captured in New Orleans and then returned or sold there, uh, you know. Uh, that's, uh, no, that's really um, uh, some fascinating stuff. Um, now, uh, okay, I, and, and as bad as all of that would be, it, it seems like it's certainly obviously worse uh, for, for women of color. Um, uh, and a lot of, uh, you know, obviously with this, with these incomplete and unknown stories, uh, we were, you're working with court records that you mentioned, there's no newspaper in the, until the 1790s, which kind of surprised, said this surprises me because I know there's, uh, and I guess the, yeah. the, you know, in the Caribbean, I know there's plenty of newspapers at this. In the English Caribbean. Yeah, in the, or excuse me. Yeah, in the English Caribbean. So, uh, um, okay. Uh, one person though who who comes up repeatedly. Uh, did you mention Amy Lewis? I'm sorry. Did you? Not yet. No, not yet. Um, I want to talk about Amy Lewis. You, you mentioned uh, uh, you have, you tell some some great stories of some people when you do get the records. I want I want to point that out to everybody. Um, we're we're just going to focus, I guess, on Amy Lewis. Who is Amy Lewis? What's her story? Uh, I like to call, I, I meant, I call her a, a, a forgotten founder of our country. Um, well, <laughs> maybe that's a little too far, but uh, anyway, uh, who is, who is Amy Lewis? Well, Amy Lewis is this, I, I think when, when you study things like slavery and enslaved people and, and you start digging in the archives because in, in so many cases, we just see, you know, fragments of their lives, just a flash um, because then at one moment, then the names are recorded or some of their actions are recorded. Yeah. Um, and so we built sort of this mosaic, um, of, of their histories and try to do justice to them by doing that. And so she is sort of the, the rule, the exemption to the rule that proves the rule. Um, cause I, I was able to sort of trace her in archives in, in Natchez in Texas and in Spain. Um, I found her in all these places. And so I was able to sort of reconstruct uh, a more complete uh, biography of her. So what I know from, you know, a combination of court records mostly is that she was an enslaved woman who belonged to uh, an Anglo-American settler who died in 1788. And then in his estate, she was described as Amy, you know, uh, born in South Carolina. So we know she was um, used to English American slavery and had come to Natchez with that family. And then 
At some point in time, she met uh, a man named uh, Azael Lewis, who is the son-in-law of, of her enslaver. And his sister then sells Amy Lewis to him. And he has a relationship with her. And when I say relationship, you know, because you said sort of enslaved women are the weakest link in all of these societies. And, and we as historians have to be very cautious um, to describe the, the status of this relationship because we don't know. Because again, slavery is built on violence. So we don't know if he forced her into a relationship. I have court records and witness statements that sort of suggest that he might not have, but we, it's hard to say. Sexual mm -hmm. violence is very much a part of slavery. Um, but they seem to have had a relationship that was not necessarily uh, relying on violence because I have other enslaved women who, who the court records clearly really real that were beaten by their partners and so forth. And we don't, I don't have that. Uh, but lack of evidence doesn't mean it doesn't happen. Um, but we know that um, he and Amy Lewis have at least one child for sure. Amy Lewis might have had another child before him because there, there are two names. There's um, Henry, who there clearly is uh, Asha Lewis's son, but there's also a, a boy named Marshall who pops up like maybe once or twice um, in, in the um, legal records. And that is really, that kind of shows you how brutal slavery is and what it does to people because Amy Lewis has to make a choice legally to when she wants freedom to to get that freedom for her and for Henry and Marshall she doesn't have the legal standing to grant the same thing so he just disappears I don't we don't know where he is what happened to him like yeah. he might have died but we don't know uh, and that's sort of really brutal like she has to make a conscience decision conscientious decision to just focus on her one son not on the other um, so but she 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 builds this relationship with um, Asael Lewis who gets sick and then dies in 1794 and then things become really tricky um, because she immediately takes a piece of paper to the governor of New Orleans uh, of Natchez and says look these are my freedom papers. My man, this man freed me in his will. And the governor of Natchez immediately says, yep, looks good. And his, and his, her son, right? And says, and this is his son. So, okay, they're free. And he says, that's good. And that causes a response from technically her sort of common sister-in-law, right? From Asha Lewis's sister who had sold her to him. That woman then sues and says this is a forgery, and they want, and, you know, she wants Amy Lewis and potentially the two sons back as property because they're valuable, and that triggers this court case, in which the Spanish government certainly investigates the claim of forgery, but also does things like grant Amy Lewis a lawyer, legal protection, and the lawyer does a really good. These are the records I have. That he does a really good job. He creates this um, track record in which he sort of employs Spanish law in a way that the Anglo lawyer doesn't quite understand, I don't think. So he's really proving to the Spanish court that Amy Lewis indeed was sort of the common wife. They never really said the vows in front of a Catholic church, which you can do yeah. under Spanish law. In American law, that's usually outlawed, but under Spanish law, you can do that. Um, 
uh, he proves that despite that, that they didn't do that, they were still common wife and common man. Like he uses certain phrases that are very um, standard in Spanish jurisprudence to kind of prove that. And a lot of witnesses come forward and, and say that. And Amy Lewis for about three years, three and a half, four years operates quite freely. She, she's uh, suing other people for, for horses and, and, and other property. Um, she, she runs some kind of business. Um, like she, she's living as a free person. And, but the court case doesn't go away. There is no actual adjudication. And then in 1798, when we see this final power change, right, this is sort of this, sort of these things that historians have to deal with. You see this plea uh, of her to Manuel Gayoso, the governor at the time who's about to become governor in New Orleans. And she begs him, like this is literally where she begs him to take herself and the case with him to New Orleans. Uh, because, and I think she says, you know, this is uh, more important to her than her life is her liberty because her liberty also proves that her son is free. Wow, yeah. And so she begs him to take the case, but in the wash, I mean, it's again, it's an enslaved, maybe not enslaved person, but it's not like Gayoso has a particular attachment. And yeah. so he leaves uh, her case and she herself won't, I'm not traveling to New Orleans. And then um, she's re-enslaved by an American judge. Uh, her son is free, but he's, I think, nine or 10 years old at the time. I mean, not much to do there. Yeah. Um, and then the, the, that's it. There's then a lose all kind of trace of, of her story. Um, sadly, I do, I traced some of the cases in, in New Orleans then just to kind of look for her to see if maybe she, um, and I found that Gayoso in two similar cases uh, found very much for, uh, were also, you know, where women, where black women had been partners of white men and had had children uh, and then the white men die and they successfully sue for their freedom and resist, you know, other white people trying to get them back as property. And Gayoso always adjudicates for these women based on Spanish law. So I think in the long run, Amy Lewis would have won her freedom, but right. then there's this change and, and she doesn't, she kind of falls back into enslavement and disappears from the records. Wow. Um, well, okay. So I guess the final little topic I want to talk about, uh, is a uh, quote unquote King Cotton. Uh, and, and you mentioned uh, at the beginning of the book that we miss a lot uh, by only focusing on the rise of cotton in the Southeast. Um, would you like to talk about what you mean by that? What, 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 are, what, are, folks, what, are, what are folks missing with tradition, I guess a traditional, the historiography of, of, the, of the deep South? Yeah, so what I mean by that is, and this is sort of, the traditional story of Natchez is the, the capital of King Cotton. And if you do that, it, the history becomes teleological, right? The, the outcome is clear. So we just focus on the outcome and we tell a story that gets us to that outcome. But that story is not necessarily the story that actually occurred. We, we miss, you know, all kinds of meandering ways that we get to that story. And Cotton is that like people in Natchez again focus so much on on the origin story of cotton that they over you know I mean Natchez first staple crop was not cotton it was tobacco right um, yeah. and there were enormous ups and downs we have an indigo um, short for a short time there as well um, and the the foundation of the society that would eventually very successfully grow cotton 
is part of that original, that earlier history. Without that foundation, right? I mean, it, it is just part of that story. It needs to be told. Yeah. Um, and uh, well, I guess one last thing, you, you, you write that the, when, I guess, what, when, as cotton does start to grow, the number of enslaved people imported into Natchez grows uh, dramatically, but uh, manumissions do not. Um, I, I, I guess, would you like to talk about what, what happens to Natchez uh, when, when cotton does become the most valuable crop? I mean, everything is subsumed under that guys i mean there's no you know like there are lulls economic lulls across all plantation or slave societies where people agree to sort of manumit people because they become a burden or they're no longer economically economically um feasible or or even uh valuable and so there there are these periods where it's easy to freedom but in natchez the trajectory is just like straight up, you know, cotton is just so dominant. Um, no, that's great. Uh, I, I just want to say, Christian, I, I really loved your book. Um, when I originally wrote this, I, I literally had to like combine and cut down like uh, twice as many questions, folks. I've got thank like a you. I much appreciate that. Yeah, no, thank you uh, for joining us. Uh, folks, um, if you're like me and you've got more questions, once again, uh, the author is uh, Dr. Christian Pinnon, not Pinnon. And the book is Complexion of Empire in Natchez, Race and Slavery in the Mississippi Borderlands. You can find a link in the show notes. Uh, again, Christian, have a great day. Thanks very much. Thank for- you. Appreciate it. You do All too. right. Wanna hit stop? Hey, fellow pirates, come and listen what I say. The captain is a tyrant and I no longer obey. I'm sick of taking orders from the madman in command So let's drop him on an island And leave him in the sand Cause it's a mutiny It's a mutiny It's a mutiny And now we're taking over the ship It's a mutiny It's a mutiny It's a mutiny And now we're taking over the ship What's happening here? You're no longer in control and we're drinking off your beer. This is now a democratic, egalitarian pirate ship. So enjoy your trip. Cause it's a mutiny. It's a mutiny. It's a mutiny.